today on CityCast Madison. A federal government shutdown affecting millions of Americans is looming. There's war in the Middle East. The country could really use a functional U.S. House of Representatives right about now, but we don't have one. Since Republicans ousted Representative Kevin McCarthy in early October, the closely divided House has been without a speaker, and no legislative action can be taken without one. We get the latest on the unprecedented showdown happening in Washington from Representative Mark Pocan, who represents Madison in Congress. We spoke to him late Tuesday afternoon from his office in Washington. It's Wednesday, October 25th. I'm Dylan Brogan, and here's what Madison's talking about. Congressman, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, glad to be here. So I hear you're in need of a speaker. <laughs> Who would you like to see as the next speaker? Oh, my God. Um, you know, this is beyond uh, chaotic, right? I mean, we, we know that this year the Republican caucus has operated in a way that, you know, never that I've been in Congress anyway, uh, we've operated, which is really letting um, the 20 or 40 most extreme members run the caucus. But in this case, uh, you know, people booted Kevin McCarthy, I would say for good reason, because I think he's been the worst speaker I can think of in my adult lifetime. But now they can't seem to pick a new speaker and they won't come to the Democrats for votes. So because of it, I don't know who they're going to pick a speaker because they won't come to us. You know, we've said there's a bipartisan path forward that we could work with them, have some shared governance, and we'll vote for someone that they will still be picking because, you know, they're in the majority, but uh, they right now refuse to come and get our votes. So I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. Um, we've had one constituent offer up uh, their dog, Sandwich, who I think would be a fine speaker, but uh, probably as good of a chance as most Republican members of Congress at this point. Yeah, I saw you tweet that out. And I mean, it's true. You don't need to be elected to Congress to become the Speaker of the House. No, no. In fact, for a while, they put Donald Trump's name out. Um, you know, just because he heard his name, he loved it. Um, but, you know, I think we're we're figuring this out. You know, there's a couple paths forward. I mean, I could see us just giving the temporary speaker a, a short amount of time so we can get back to regular business while they're figuring this out. That might make sense. So we're just not stagnant like we are right now. Two, they could maybe figure this out, although I think that's probably the most remote chance at this point. Three, I could see a path where Kevin McCarthy comes back. Um, and because, you know, it was only eight Republicans that didn't want him possibly there. And I think a long shot that I say would be the Vegas highest odds would be that someone who's not currently a speaker would be brought in. But I even that I think would be hard to find consensus among the Republicans right now, given the the real I mean, chaos is like the least strong word I could use for what they're experiencing. Well, we got uh, the current nominee that the GOP has put up is GOP whip. Tom Emmer from Minnesota. We'll see what happens with him. Uh, are there any representatives seeking the speaker post who don't question the outcome of the 2020 presidential election? I think there are two, uh, and one got eliminated early, and, and Emmer is the other. But this afternoon, Donald Trump put out a decree against Emmer, said he's a rhino, which I'm guessing will seal this fate. I think there's 26 people said they won't vote for Emmer ever. Wow. That's all it takes? Exactly. And the question is, do you do what Jim Jordan did and make us spend a week voting for him multiple times and having him lose votes each time? Or does Emmer just say, I'm withdrawing my name? 
but I don't know if they have a plan B. And that's part of our dilemma is we really don't have a good plan B to put forward. So this is the longest the House has been without a speaker since James Doty was bribing people with buffalo robes to make Madison the state capital. What does it really mean in terms of the day-to-day work of Congress that there is no speaker of the House right now? Well, it means we can't do anything on the floor. Um, We have a speaker pro tem that the only power they have is to convene the election, uh, but we can't pass resolutions. We certainly can't pass appropriation bills for which we have a clock ticking on a continuing resolution for government to keep it open until November 17th. That's impossible now to get done, uh, given the inaction of the last several weeks. So, you know, really, we're stagnant. We can only go to the floor to have a vote on electing a speaker unless we would empower the pro tem with more powers. But, you know, that's risky because that would be historical. That sets a very different precedent. And um, I I honestly, Dylan, couldn't tell you what I think is the most likely outcome uh, of what will happen next. So the U.S. House is not the Wisconsin Assembly. There are only nine more Republicans than Democrats. So the Democrats, it seems like they have been pretty hands-off as the Republicans battle this out. The Democrats can't find nine Republicans out of more than 200 to strike a deal here? Well, actually, that's the number that voted against McCarthy. They actually only have a five-seat margin, and it might even be down to a four-seat margin, but we're down someone right now. So it's either four or five is the actual imperative number. The problem is they refuse to work with us and they refuse to come and get our votes, period, right now. That's a rule they passed at the beginning of the session when Kevin McCarthy first became speaker and gave away up everything to the most extreme elements in order to become speaker. So we're in an odd spot. You know, I don't know what the path forward. The good news is Democrats are very unified. We think Hakeem Jeffries is going to be a great speaker someday. And if it's not this session because of their dysfunction. It certainly will be after next November's election. I think people can see that this is a ungoverning majority and they'll want to change. But, you know, we've offered, we've said we have votes to help get through this, to reopen government, to, you know, make sure that we can pass the bills that we need to. They just refuse to to follow that path at, in any way possible right now. There's just no Republicans that you'd vote for, or is it just you can't even have that conversation? No, we could. I mean, if if Emmer, for example, came to us and said, look, we're going to share some governing with the Democrats. Clearly, we're a very closely divided um, Congress. We can't seem to elect a speaker for several weeks now. Uh, we need some votes, but in, in doing so, uh, we'll have shared responsibility for what bills come to the floor, or we'll give you some committee chairmanships, or something to show there's some shared governance. I I think that's the offer that's been on the table for three weeks. And I think uh, Hakeem Jeffries would, you know, cut a deal so that we could get back to working. Again, they refuse to come to us to get that figured out. Not even former Speaker McCarthy, is he not coming hat in hand to to the Democrats to see what can be done? Honestly, you know, we've been dealing with a lot of symptoms, but the the root of the disease has been Kevin McCarthy because he gave away so much in the rules process in order to become speaker that now we have to abide by this broken set of rules. And quite honestly, he governed like Jim Jordan anyway. You just didn't have the vitriol. You had a little bit more of a, a flavorless jello aspect to him because he didn't really believe in much. And, you know, whatever he was standing next to, he'd look like, you know, he governed like Jim Jordan. So I, I don't see a speaker right now under the current process that's going to be any different. However, if they really would come to us and have some sort of arrangement and we got votes to have make sure that we have a speaker and we can function, we're open to that. And that is a path forward. I just don't know 
if it's one that they will actually accept. Well, to the American people, I think flavorless Jello wouldn't taste so bad right now because there are real consequences if Congress is immobilized. Yeah, I was literally just texted that Emmer just dropped out of the speaker race. Oh, well, there we go. A little, a little news for us. So cool. So that's the thing, right? And that's what we're going through right now is it's a constant. They don't know what they're doing. Like you would not think this is the highest level of government, a governmental body in the country that's performing a bit more like a fourth grade student council. But that's what we're doing, right? Like they're showing the ineptitude that exists. So I don't know what to say, Dylan, other than, you know, I'm here. Uh, I don't have to wear a tie because I'm not going to the floor. And you know me from my time in Wisconsin. I hate wearing ties. So I guess that's the one benefit. I always try to find a silver lining. But the reality is, you know, we have some important stuff to do, given what's happening in the Middle East, given what's happening in Ukraine, knowing that we have a government shutdown on November 17th if we don't pass funding bills. There's just a lot at stake. What are the consequences for your constituents back in Wisconsin if the government shuts down? Well, you know, if we're needed to pass uh, right now, the president just gave Congress a security supplemental for the country, which includes funding for Ukraine, for Israel, for humanitarian aid, for the border, for a lot of different things. It's a hundred plus billion dollar package. Today, we're getting, I believe, a supplemental from the White House uh, for domestic spending that's going to have child care funding and some other issues. So we've got two bills that are kind of important to take care of, certainly before uh, we can possibly get another budget going. So that's two examples of things that really will affect people immediately if we can't get done. Um, but the fact that November 17th, government will shut down without action by Congress, the only way we can have action is to have Congress convened. So do we risk a government shutdown under the current scenario. And, you know, we also have a farm bill that in Wisconsin, if we don't address at least some provisions of by the end of the year, there's a provision that automatically goes back to 1940s dairy policy, which will have a huge spike in the price of milk that will really hurt Wisconsin farmers um, if that happens. So that's just another example of something that we were supposed to have done by September 30th. We didn't and because this majority can't govern, if we don't do some even temporary provision by the end of the year, Wisconsin farmers are going to be, dairy farmers anyway, are going to be really hurt. So what does a lack of speaker mean in terms of just any kind of congressional response to what's happening in the Middle East right now? Well, right now, largely there's resolutions before Congress that while they may state where Congress stands and kind of indicate how we could vote, they still don't have any real bearing on what's happening. So Bluntly, if, if they happen a week later, it's it's not the worst thing in the world, although it's important, I think, that we have an official voice on what's going on. But what's really going to matter is the security supplemental, for example. Um, that has funding both for humanitarian aid for Israel and Gaza, uh, as well as security military aid for Israel and for Ukraine. Also funding for border protection, all in that bill. So none of those dollars can move forward unless Congress can pass a supplement. So you have called for a cessation of hostilities towards civilians by all parties in the war between Israel and Hamas. You say that the retaliation by Israel is less targeted at Hamas or Islamic Jihad and more closely resembles a collective punishment against all Palestinians and others living in Gaza. So what do you think the U.S. government should be doing right now about it? Well, I think probably we are doing some of this behind the scenes. And that's quite honestly how the Biden administration works. He's not going to wear 
everything he's trying to get done on his sleeve. Um, he's an old school Paul, and they're having a lot of back channel conversations, which is how they started getting some of the trucks with humanitarian supplies in. Although, granted, pathetically a small amount. Um, 500 trucks a day used to go into Gaza bringing supplies, and each of these has been a caravan of about 20 trucks. For 2 million people, clearly that's not enough food, water, and medicine, much less no fuel. Um, the hospitals are about to run out of power, uh, which means um, incubators for premature babies. Uh, 5,500 women are going to give birth in Gaza in the next month. Um, you have to have that for some of the babies that are going to be born. Um, there's a whole lot of uh, ramifications. So, you know, I think the U.S. needs to continue to push for that humanitarian aid, for a safe channel, uh, for bringing things in, and as well as people who may want to leave, for absolutely stopping um, the, I think, overly broad bombing. I mean, if you're specifically going after Hamas, and I do believe Israel has a right to go after Hamas after the, the awful attack that occurred, but what they're doing is literally flattening you know, city block areas. Um, uh, over 5,000 people now have been killed, several thousand children. Clearly, children are not Hamas. I mean, what's going on is, is too much, and uh, they have to be more targeted in what they're doing, not doing this. So the best way to accomplish that is just have a cessation of hostilities towards civilians, which is what almost every humanitarian group has asked for. I'm glad the president appointed a special envoy, but let's get to the work of trying to bring out about a peace process. How is all that going to be affected if Israel launches a ground invasion of Gaza? Well, and that's the thing. I mean, it depends what exactly that's going to look like. I think already it's been delayed because of U.S. pressure, uh, bluntly. Um, but, you know, you've moved half of the population from one end of, the, of Gaza to the other. That already is is the definition of collective punishment, right? That is not going after the specifically Hamas population. I think they said around, and I could be wrong on my numbers, but about a thousand Hamas fighters were involved with that horrific attack. And I did a little more research that they're saying as many as 30,000 people could be part of Hamas, but there's 2.2 million people in Gaza. So clearly impacting those kind of numbers, you know, the argument that it's Hamas's fault that civilians are put in harm's way just doesn't carry enough merit because I really do believe the Israeli government is much better than that. The people of Israel certainly are, uh, and they really need to respect more humanitarian aspects than they are with this fight against Hamas, not against the people, uh, the Palestinians of Gaza. So before the attack by Hamas militants that led to this war, you received permission from Israel to go to Gaza as a member of Congress. Why did you want to go? Yeah, I've been trying to get in for five or six years. The last two times I've been to the region, I've been to the region three times. I tried to get in, uh, was turned down um, both times. Uh, the last one was a little bit amusing. Um, you know, we met with many senior officials in Israel, and the defense minister told me I had to talk to the foreign minister. The foreign minister told me I had to talk to the defense minister. Then I went to the number one guy, the prime minister, who started the whole process again. And finally, when I returned home, I got a letter saying they don't allow members of Congress or parliament into Gaza, which is against U.S. law. Um, I had a provision uh, put in through the appropriations process several years ago that any country that receives money from the U.S. has to let us in. So I think it's that leverage along with five years of, quite honestly, harassing you know, the, the Israel government about letting me in. Finally, I got permission from Israel. And I talked to the State Department and essentially got permission there. And there was one final step of the, the, the actual entity that governs uh, Gaza that had to give final permission. But I, I got it from the, the country, which is what 
has been lacking. The last member of Congress to be there uh, was Keith Ellison 10 years ago. And, you know, I think we need to have oversight, one, to know really what the conditions are on the ground of 2.2 million people and what I think is fair to call an open air prison, but two, to also get the U.S. reinvolved, because I think part of what's brought us to this really awful place in history has been some untenable conditions in Gaza, period. The way that um, Israel and uh, Egypt has kept control of who can come in and out of Gaza, that's why we call it an open-air prison. There isn't open access. So if you're confined to this relatively small area, some people have never left that area. They've been born in Gaza. Like I said, half the population are kids. More attention has needed to be there. I was told by an official from UNRWA, which is the UN agency that provides relief um, in Gaza and has for, for many years, that the conditions are just awful enough that you can live, but that's about it. That's not acceptable, right? So I, uh, as someone who cares about human rights across the planet, um, have been trying to get in and I finally got there and then this happened. So I doubt I'm going to get let in any time soon, but I think it's important to to keep the pressure on because it is important what's happening because don't forget, we provide an awful lot of funding to our ally and it is our ally, Israel. Therefore, we have responsibilities. Yeah, Absolutely. You started to talk about humanitarian aid for Gaza. How much should the U.S. spend on that humanitarian aid? It should be a significant amount of money. I mean, I would argue, and I think many people would argue, that the conditions in Gaza are as bad as maybe a handful of places on the planet, including places like Syria and Yemen. Um, It truly needs to have the type of support that we often provide to countries who are going through, you know, a war. And in particular, um, I would argue that a lot of U.S. dollars go towards defense equipment, including not just defensive things like Iron Dome that takes missiles out. It's not an offensive weapon. And I think it saves lives on both sides of the Gaza-Israel border. But we also fund the the bombs and the military equipment that they're using. And because of that, I would argue we have a responsibility even more so to be there to help um, provide immediately humanitarian aid and down the road rebuilding. So your colleague, Representative Derek Van Orden, Republican from La Crosse, he's visiting Israel right now. Uh, Did he ask you to go with him? And would you have gone if he did? You know, I don't even know if he knows what he's doing, to be blunt, um, because he's pretty green around here. And uh, he's been missing votes for speaker and things like that while he's there. I'm not sure even it's an officially authorized trip that he's on either. But I think the fact that he's a Navy SEAL, he thinks that he can bring about world peace somehow by going there. It's very naive, but he is a new member of Congress. So I cut him a little bit of slack. But, you know, we got to remember, this is also the guy who yells at Senate pages and librarians and other things. I don't know if he's the most stable person to bring into a peace process. So, you know, I just hope that he's not there doing something that, quite honestly, is counterproductive and could actually be a problem for moving forward with any kind of uh, peace in the region. Congressman Mark Pocan, thank you so much for your time today. Well, absolutely. Thank you, Dylan. That was Democratic Congressman Mark Pocan from Wisconsin's 2nd District. He represents the greater Madison area in south-central Wisconsin. And here's what else Madison's talking about. Attorneys General. Wisconsin AG Josh Call has joined a coalition of 42 other attorneys general to sue Meta, the company that owns Facebook and Instagram. 
The legal actions in state and federal courts allege Meta knowingly designed and deployed harmful features on Instagram and other social media platforms to purposely addict children and teens to the company's products. Call says adequate protection should be in place to protect kids and parents must receive accurate information about potential dangers to their kids. And employees at Wisconsin Watch have announced they intend to unionize the nonprofit statewide news outlet. The union would include journalists at Wisconsin Watch, as well as business and administrative employees. 80% of eligible staff have signed union cards, and an organizing committee has asked leadership at Wisconsin Watch to voluntarily recognize the union. That's all for today here on CityCast Madison. I'm Dylan Brogan. If you enjoyed the show, why not share this episode with someone who listens to podcasts via Alexa? There's a house speaker you can rely on. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Until then, 